0: As a church family to join together. Check, am I on? Can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, Amber Hopp is the daughter of Randy Hopp, who fellowships here with his wife, Leticia. And she was involved in a very, very serious accident a couple of weeks ago. And um, broken femur, broken legs, broken arms, pelvis broken into several pieces. And um, she's a miracle that she's alive. And then tonight I got a text from Randy and text, he texts out to a few friends and that Amber, her white blood cell count is uh, elevated so there's an infection somewhere. She also has uh, pneumonia in her lungs which is not a good situation. And also we want to just pray together right now and that God's going to turn this situation around this evening. So would you pray with me? Lord, you tell us to do all of the asking. And you tell us to ask and keep on asking in these situations that we have absolutely no power over. And so we ask for Amber tonight, and you are more aware than even the doctors are of her physical needs, and they are considerable. And we thank you, Lord, for all of these surgeries that she's had in the last couple of weeks and pinning all these different bones together and how good you have been to her and how gracious and. We pray tonight in Jesus' name, and we ask, Lord, that whatever the infection is that's causing this elevated white blood cell count, that you would heal her of that. We pray specifically concerning the pneumonia that is in her lungs, that tonight would represent a turning point in that situation. Bless her, meet with her, Lord, not only physically, but emotionally and in her thoughts and in her spirit. We pray that you would be close to her, Lord, and strong in her life, and she'd have that recognition of your presence. We pray, for Aunt, we pray for Randy, and we pray for Leticia, and we ask that you would also strengthen them, Lord, and be an ever-present help in their time of need as well. So we pray to you tonight as an expression of our faith, Lord, and we look forward to your answer to our prayer. We pray that You would meet with us now in Your Word. We desire to be conformed into the image of Your Son. We've been in a world all week long that is trying to fashion our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and trying to fashion it in a way that is very far from what You want to have happen. So we ask that You would use Your Word to wash us, to reform us, Lord, to build us up, to equip us, and strengthen us to be the unique people and kingdom that we are in this world. And so give us ears to hear your Holy Spirit through your Word tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, and good evening to you. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10 this evening. If you're with us this evening, and Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave them to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand tonight. And then, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus spoke a couple of very significant truths to the disciples that were with him, the apostles, and uh, true for them, but also true for us. And he declared to them that the fields are white unto harvest. And that is true of every age. It is true of this exact moment that we sit in this room right now, that the city of Modesto and Escalon and Turlock and Ripon and Ceres and all every place around the world, that it is a spiritual harvest that is just waiting to occur. There are people waiting to hear the gospel. They are waiting to hear about the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus has done on the cross for them and for us. The fields are white under harvest, but he also said that the laborers are few, and that is always the true truth in every age. There are never enough laborers in order to bring that harvest in, so to speak. And so there's always that need for more people to be stepping up into their calling and becoming a part of the Great Commission, which involves not only people coming to know the Lord, but also them. And once they do become the Lord, uh, know the Lord, just like many of us in this room, to now become His disciples, to become His followers, mature followers, mature uh, Christians, followers of Jesus. And so He told them that in the light of these two great truths, they needed to pray to God to add more labors into the harvest field, knowing full well that when we pray for a need and we pray to God, nobody that is really full of the Holy Spirit is going to be able to pray for any length of time in the light of a field widened to harvest, in the light of eternity, people needing to hear the gospel, the labors are few, except that in a very short order, we will be surrendering our own lives to the Lord and asking Him to send us into our part of the harvest field that He wants us to be in. And so here in chapter 10, That's exactly what now happens with his 12 disciples, with uh, the apostles. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. In chapter 10, What Jesus is doing is He is commissioning His disciples now to go throughout the land of Israel. Jesus is going to follow them to the various cities that they're going to, and they are to prepare the way that Messiah is coming, Jesus is coming, we are preaching about Him, He will be here in person very, very soon. So He gives them this commission now uh, to tell the world about the coming of Messiah And in this commission that he gives them in chapter 10 are invaluable ministry lessons where he is warning them about uh, some of the difficulties they're going to face in being obedient to his commission to serving Him in their part of the, the uh, mission field and the, their part of the harvest, but also speaking to them about the joys and the blessings, the good things that will happen as they do that as well. And so as we see this commission to them, though it was specific to that particular point in time and in some ways, but uh, generally it speaks to uh, God's call upon any of our lives as He calls us out uh, to serve Him. And in verse 1 here as He calls these 12 disciples, gives them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases, here is the principle that God's callings are God's enablings. Whatever He calls us to do, He will always give us the power to do, and the calling is everything. And one of the greatest questions that everyone has when God says, this is what I want you to do in life, this is what I, how I want you to serve me, whether it's in children's ministry or whether it's a parachurch organization or leading home Bible study or whatever it might be, the first consciousness that we have, Moses had it, uh, Gideon had it, Jeremiah had it, these are great men of God, was, I can't do this. You're calling me to do something, immediately conscious of their inability to do it, and then God has to speak to them with a the kind of clarity that He does here. That is, if I call you to do something, I will enable you to do that. We must not, at whatever age God calls us to do anything... And I think as I look at the younger within our congregation here, so often, you know, Calvary Chapel is a a fairly mature movement at this point in time, begun in the 60s and all. Sometimes we forget that Greg Laurie went out and started that church in Riverside at the age of 19. Sometimes we're waiting till 40 or something, or Moses at 80 before we finally uh, get on track. But Um, but uh, there's that consciousness of, I can't do this. You're calling me to do something I can't do, and we need to be reminded here that if God calls us to do something, He will also enable us to do it. Notice in verse 2, Now the names of the twelve apostles were these. For Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Uh, Judas Iscariot who betrayed Him. And so here is uh, this calling of these uh, twelve apostles to now uh, head out into God's call upon their lives and to bring uh, the news of Jesus coming now into this larger region now. He entrusts that message to them. And there's a second great principle that we find here is that God generally uses very, very ordinary people for His work. Now there is, Paul wrote and he said, You see your calling, brethren, he wrote to the church at Corinth, Not many mighty, not many noble, not many this and that and all. And, and everything because God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise he chooses to use weak instruments and ordinary instruments so that when he does something amazing through that person's life people won't look and say well it's his phd or no it's his natural talent or her natural talent it can't be explained by uh, by their lives the only way that god gets glory in his use of us is when he does something that is patently obvious to everyone that we are incapable of doing in and of ourselves. And so he chooses ordinary people and then he manifests himself as an extraordinary God through us and then people realize, I can add up every asset that man or woman has and it doesn't add up to the way that God is using them and then God gets noticed and then God gets the glory. One of the things that we pray every so often with the worship team and all before we come out and begin the service is that everybody will have a sense of God's presence and a pre- and a sense that what happened here in this room on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night is more than can be explained by the collective talents or abilities of the people that are up on the stage. How will God get any glory unless it's something way bigger than that and can't be explained by people's natural talent and and abilities? And so He chooses ordinary people by and large to do His work. And again, the importance of recognizing that so we don't talk ourselves out of God's call upon our lives because we are not something spectacular or we don't have the ability to do in our own nature what it is that He's called us to do. That's by design. Um, There isn't anyone that serves the Lord and is used by the Lord that isn't uh, uh, always conscious of the fact that there is a considerable gap between what God has called them to do and the need that God has called them to meet, and their ability to meet that need, and it is the recognition of that gap. And when God fills that gap, then that He gets noticed and He uh, gets gets the glory for everything. When I, for me, in terms of just ordinary people, He couldn't pick more ordinary than picking me. I'll tell you, He, I am, and and you. I don't know what you think about me in your mind, but if you think of me as anything more than a Pacific Bell lineman trying to do this impossible, humanly impossible thing for me to do in order to be faithful and obedient to him to maybe one day hear a well-done now good and faithful servant enter into the joy of the Lord, then you think too much of me. And I know you don't think too much of me. But that's the way that we all feel. And again, the importance of not talking ourselves out of that. God calls, by and large, very ordinary people. The disciples were very ordinary. Uh, they had lots of rough edges. They're fishermen. They had no kind of sophisticated religious education. By and large, they were very young. They were all of them in their early 20s, and John was probably just a teenager at this particular point in time in his life, and yet God called them and and. Uh, ordinary people, and he knew he could get away with it because, again, he is an extraordinary God. And these twelve Jesus sent out, and he commanded them, saying, "'Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep Of the house of Israel. So for them, they were called at this point in time not to go uh, into the area of Samaria or into uh, Tyre or Sidon or up into these Gentile areas, but to bring the gospel, the news that the Messiah is present in human history in the person of Jesus, to bring that news to the Jews first in order that they might have the kind of first right to recognize Him as Messiah, receive Him as Messiah, then the message would go to the Gentiles. As Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek or the Gentile. This was the order. He came to the Jews first. They had a first opportunity at recognizing Him, and then to the Gentiles. We, of course, we bring the gospel in this hour in uh, church history to anyone and everyone who will listen, both uh, Jew and Gentile. And as you go preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this was their message, the declaration that the kingdom of heaven is at hand And the kingdom of heaven here is speaking about Jesus. He is the access to that kingdom. And so here is the declaration, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Messiah is coming your way, He's following us, He's coming into these uh, villages, and that is what they were to preach. That was to uh, be their, uh, their message and important for Uh, them to go out and deliver the message. They're going to get kind of things going here where, uh, in verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons, but first they were to preach. Uh, The emphasis of the church or the emphasis of evangelism or missions is always the preaching of the gospel. It is always the message. And then God confirms His Word and His message with accompanying signs and wonders The body of Christ historically always gets in trouble when it begins to seek after signs and wonders uh, independent of the message, independent of the uh, Word of God, and they get things backwards. And uh, and here Jesus tells them, take the preaching, the message is everything. What good is it if I'm a leper and I'm cleansed of my leprosy, or if I'm demon-possessed and I'm uh, uh, delivered of the demon, or I'm healed of some kind of sickness in my life, but nobody preached the gospel to me. Nobody told me how to be saved. Nobody took care of my eternity. Yes, my leg is healed but nobody told me how to have everlasting life in a relationship with God. So the importance of not having within Christianity, is we're a part of the mission field and a part of uh, God's work, that we do not get those things backwards, we take the message. The message is the way that our lives and eternities are changed, and then God can then use these uh, signs and wonders in, in uh, whatever way that He chooses to then confirm the message. And He gave gave them this power uh, to do all of these things. You can imagine as they're preaching the fact that the kingdom of uh, God is at, at hand, Messiah is coming, He's going to follow us here uh, shortly, uh, and, and then all of a sudden there's these healings, there's these cleansings that are going on, and I'll tell you, the whole city must have, as a result of that, been on the edge of their seat waiting for the day that Jesus would come uh, into the city. Everybody's attention with this demonstration of power. And then Jesus said to them, freely you have received and freely give. And that's an important ministry principle as well. As you might imagine, um, as God uses us in large ways or in, in small ways, but there really are no small ways when God uses us because all of it's important. But when God uses us to impact another person's life, um, and it's God doing it, and it's not us doing it, but God has done it. People are indebted to a person that God has used in their life in a powerful way. We remember fondly the person that led us to Christ. We remember fondly the people that God used to take us through a crisis in life or pray over us and were healed and and so, uh, when God uses us in another person's life, so often they feel so indebted to us in some way, in a misunderstanding of things, but it still happens that they're in a place of vulnerability. You can take advantage of them. You can take advantage of them. And the more people that God uses you in their life, the more people that you can take advantage of and so we're never to use God's calling upon his li- our lives his gifting upon our lives the power that he exercises through our lives to then enrich ourselves or to victimize the people that God has used us to touch by making ourselves rich off of them or getting getting something from them freely we have received we don't give anyone anything spiritually that is of impact in their life that we have not freely received from God first. And so we don't touch that. We don't use that in people's lives to then try and manipulate them in some way. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Don't take any money with you nor uh, take a bag for your journey, uh, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. So he tells them on this particular commission that they weren't to take any money, they weren't to take any food. Later on, he will tell them that they need to take those things. But in this commission, he tells them not to do that. As you might imagine, when they then came into these cities and they began to preach the gospel, and then all of these miracles are taking place. Listen, you wouldn't be able to buy a meal in a restaurant to save your life Uh, People are going to invite you into their home. They're going to feed you. They're going to be happy to feed you and take care of you. And so he tells them, listen, you don't need to take any of those things. As I work through you, um, you're going to be provided for. And here's this beautiful ministry principle that when God guides, God does provide. And he always does that. Whatever he guides us to do... And calls us to do, He will provide for us to be able to accomplish that. Uh, he doesn't take the thing that is absolutely priceless, that is, His calling upon our lives, His gospel, His eternal work in this world, and He's not going to take someone that He's entrusted those true riches to and then allow them to starve to death somewhere. He's going to take care of providing for His workers. Now, whatever city or town you enter... Inquire who is in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And so you go in and you don't want to stay in some place that's got a bad reputation or something. He said, go in there, what's a place with a good reputation? And then go into that house and stay there during the duration of your ministry in that city. And when you go into that household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon you, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So when they move into a city, and here's a house that they get invited to, it's a godly home, it's a home of people who are God's seekers, they, uh, they see what's going on and they want to host you in the home, and uh, here it is, kind of a duplex or something like that. Then God begins to use you in the city, you become hot stuff and your name is well known and all. And at that point, Jesus says, stay in the house and don't be booking a room in the Ritz-Carlton because uh, that's going to mess up the message here a little bit and it's going to like look like you're in this for the money rather than in this for reaching people. And so wherever you go in, the main thing is not how ornate the house is or how... Um, luxurious the house is, what is the spiritual tone of that home, what is the gift of hospitality, and then stay in there. How many of you know you can be in the most beautiful home in the whole world or the most beautiful city in the whole world, and if the Holy Spirit isn't there, you want to get out of that place. All that matters is where is God present. And uh, so he says, you stay there and, and uh, put your peace upon that home. And Of course, as we enter into any home that we enter into as Christians, we bring a peace with our lives. At least we ought to, and that's the peace that's on our lives, and uh, I think it's good for us to be conscious of that as Christians, that we walk in peace, there's an anointing upon our lives, and that when we walk into a house, we can pronounce peace upon that house. And uh, this morning I was at the back door, second service, and one of the brothers came up to me and he said, peace be unto you. I said, I receive it there's something real about that. He's just doing exactly what we've got here, just not a house. And so there's a kind of an authority that we have as Christians. We bring that peace and we can pronounce it upon a home. And wherever you and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, they reject the gospel, they reject your message concerning the Messiah, then shake the dust uh, off the dust of your feet, assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they were going to go into cities, and uh, not everybody was going to be excited about their message. Not everybody was going to off open their homes up to them or feed them or take care of them. The city would reject them by and large. They were to go to the edge of the city. And then before they left kind of the boundary of of the city, they were to even just kind of put their sandals together and hit them so that even the dust of the city they wouldn't take with them. It was was not an expression of arrogance or self-righteousness. It was a uh, communication to the people of the city to help them realize how serious their rejection of Christ and the rejection of the message is. There's a certain kind of person that you can preach the gospel to, they reject it, but then they'll load you up with a bag of maybe apples or peaches or, uh, you know, some riceroni from the cupboard or whatever. They send you on their way, and by virtue of the fact that they've given a gift to us or something, it eases their conscience. It takes their mind off of the big thing that they've done, and that is that they've rejected Christ. And so he's, Jesus says to them, when you leave that city, let them be aware of just one thing alone and that is the seriousness of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And then when he speaks here of the fact in verse 15, assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous with uh, with uh, wickedness and unrighteousness and God's judgment coming upon that city. And yet the Lord said, if any village or city rejects Me, rejects the gospel, uh, it would, uh, the judgment that will come upon them will be even greater than the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? As wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah was. And you, all you have to do is go into the Old Testament to read about how wicked that city was. As great as their sin was, there is a sin that is far greater than any sin they ever committed with one another, and that is the sin of rejecting Christ. It is a stunning thing from the vantage point of heaven. And I mean, imagine, put yourself in the place of heaven. Here we are, we are God's creation. We can't even cure the common cold. Uh, we are so small. We are so frail. We are so fragile. We are so full of ourselves in, in the midst of all of it. But the single greatest thing that we can do is God's creation to bless the heart of God is to receive His Son and to receive His Savior. There is nothing we can do greater than that. But the single greatest thing that we can ever do to sin against God and to hurt the heart of God is to reject His Son. It is the single most serious sin a person can commit because there is no forgiveness for that sin. There is no solution to that sin. And so when they left that city, they were not to do anything that confused people about how serious what they were doing was in rejecting Christ. When I have uh, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses come to my uh, doorstep at my house, I always, if I have time, I don't always have time. But if I do have time to talk with them, I'm always happy to do it because they're a part of the mission field. And I always think to myself, you know, I could have been raised a Mormon. I could have been raised a Jehovah Witness. Walter Martin used to say that the indoctrination of, uh, that the Jehovah Witness organization uses in people's lives were much more sophisticated now. But the the brainwash, the methodology within that system is as strong a brainwash as anything anyone was using in the entire world post-World War II. It's an incredible uh, brainwashing and indoctrination that occurs uh, in Jehovah Witness uh, organization toward its people. I could have been raised in that, and I would want someone, if they could, to try and tell me, poke holes in what I believe, and point me to the Lord. So they come to the doorstep, and we begin to talk about various things, and I take them where I feel comfortable taking them to show them in the in the scriptures, the big issues with uh, biblically with with their particular uh, beliefs and all, and with Jehovah Witnesses, they talk about the fact that Jesus said, "Unless you believe that I am, that He is God, I am," is a name for God in the scriptures. Unless you believe that I am that I'm divine, then you will die in your sins. And, of course, they don't believe that Jesus is divine. And so we talk about that issue, and then we kind of get done. And I'm a very polite person. I like people, and I like to talk about people to people, and I like to talk about the Bible to people. And so we get done. It's been cordial. I never put them in a headlock or anything, twisted their ears, gave them the Danish torture, head rub, knuckle thing, or anything like that. And then we're about to leave, and I know that by virtue of the fact that we're about to agree to disagree agreeably here, and they're about to leave and potentially think, wasn't that a nice religious discussion with that nice religious man? I don't want to leave him there. And I let them know that there is a vast difference between what you believe and I believe, and I've shown you in the Scriptures why what you believe about Jesus is eternal in terms of its consequences and the need for you to believe Him for fully, fully for who He is and to trust in Him for salvation. And because if what I say is true, you are in tremendous danger as it relates to eternity. And I've shown you why what I believe is true in the Scriptures. And basically what I've done is I have wiped the dust off of my feet. They leave now realizing that this is not fun and games, this isn't a religious discussion, this is life and death serious, and I want them to realize that. And uh, to be confronted with how serious their rejection is. And so here's that same principle that Jesus lays out in verses 14 and 15 Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. How exciting is that! But inter- it's And so it was a saying in those days, just like it's a saying uh, today. Boy, they were like uh, a sheep in the midst of wolves, and speaking of uh, outward vulnerability. He doesn't say, I send you out as a wolf in the midst of wolves. And he kind of elaborates on it when Jesus says, therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In other words, we take the gospel, Uh, Whether it's in Modesto, I've had a gun pulled on me uh, sharing the gospel in Modesto. So whether it is in Modesto or on the other side of the world or where persecution is is so inflamed right now against Christians, we are sent out as sheep among the wolves. It's the acknowledgement this is a dangerous world. We get sent out into a dangerous world. A violent world, violent people are part of the people that we reach with the gospel. But the idea is that we are never to become like the world in preaching the gospel. We are never to become like the world in representing the kingdom of God. We're to be as sheep in the midst of wolves. In other words, we are never to come down to the level of the world in order to try and reach the world. There must be a difference that people can see between our lives and their lives. And it is very, very easy in, in uh, serving the Lord today and looking at the world the way that it is to forget that we were once a part of that world and the violence of it and the ungodliness uh, of all of that and to think, well, we're going to just fight fire with fire uh, against them and, and yet, here is the, the uh, prohibition against it. Once we begin to fight fire with fire, once we become like them and trying to reach them and uh, coarse and violent and, and pressure and all of these kind of things, uh, then we cease to represent the kingdom of, of God well. So we're to be sheep in the midst of wolves be wise as serpents. And uh, in other words, there's nothing wrong with assessing the situation that we're in uh, for its safety and what is what am, I, what am I in the middle of here now and then in the midst of it to be harmless as doves. And that's an important principle. Uh, very easy to, as the world declines, as it becomes more base, as it becomes darker, more sin-dominated and addicted and more violent, the temptation will be, for us to kind of follow that same curve with him in that direction, and we must not do it. We represent a different kind of kingdom and a different uh, kind of. A different God. But beware of men for they will deliver you up to councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings uh, for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And so he warns them, you're going to get arrested as a part of this deal. You're going to be brought before religious courts. You're going to be brought before secular courts and tried. Nobody's going to like you out there. Uh, and th- and that's the thing. It's interesting thing about Christianity is I mean everybody feels the threat of it, uh, whether it's religious systems or whether it's uh, secular humanism. And so you'll be brought before governors, verse eighteen, and kings. But it'll be for my sake, for you being faithful to me, and it'll be as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So He tells them, you're going to get arrested, and when you get arrested, the greatest concern in your life should not be, how do I get out of this? The greatest concern is, when you've been arrested for being a Christian, the great and single most important thing now is your testimony, the message that you're going to share in this environment that you're going to be tried in. Uh, of course, it's great that Jesus declares this because if I got, get brought into a religious court or into some kind of a secular court and, and I'm being tried for this, my first thought in my mind is going to be, how do I get out of this situation that I'm in right now? Jesus says, don't do that. You are in that situation because you're there now to deliver the message, the gospel, deliver the word that I put upon your heart. It is interesting that um, especially if you've done a fair amount of street witnessing or sharing your faith with family members or friends or or whoever and you enter into these kind of uh, conversations with people... And uh, so you start to share the gospel with them, and then they ask this, and then you say this, and then they say this, and you ask this, and the thi- thing begins to go. And the th- next thing you know, 90 seconds into it or five minutes into it, you start to say stuff that you didn't even know that you knew about God. You begin to remember verses that you never even knew that you memorized. And here is a situation now where God has put you in the middle of that. Now He's giving you all of the words that you need to say in the situation. And while you're talking, it's like an out-of-body experience. God, I know I didn't think any of this up because this isn't where I thought the discussion would go. And what you're saying is so great here, I want to take notes on what I'm saying myself. And it's one of the greatest feelings in life. And you've experienced it. And the Lord just comes in, it's His moment, and He gives us what it is that we need uh, to say. And it is, uh, it is fabulous. And so you don't have to worry. God will give you what it is that you need to speak. That's not talking um, if, if you uh, have the opportunity uh, to teach Sunday morning at some church that you can walk uh, from that corridor, whatever the equivalent is in a church, to the pulpit without any idea what you're say, going to say, and God will fill your mouth. That's a different kind of uh, promise. It's a sure way. Way um, to uh, learn never to do that again. I think. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Wow, that's within a family. The division that Christianity can bring to within a family, and the old saying, the old joke is: "Is here you got this." a teenager, a young person, a son or daughter in a household, and they're all messed up on drugs, and, and their whole life is all messed up, and they become a Christian, and, and God changes their life, and then the family looks after a while and says, we like you better on drugs. And the reason is, is because God comes into our lives, and we now become a part of the kingdom of God, and now you've got two kingdoms in that household. And now you've got two kingdoms in that relationship. And there's a war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so there's a collision that occurs. And people are smart, and they realize that when God changes our lives and makes us into something altogether new, and then we give the explanation for that to be Christ, then there is that conviction within their lives that, well, what God did for my son or daughter, God can also do for me. And the fact that I continue to live the life that I live is my own responsibility, and I have a responsibility before God in doing so because God could change me just as well. And people do not like to be made held responsible for their lifestyle or for their sin or continuing in sin even when it's not said to them in words, but it's said to them through a life. And so persecution will reach right into a family. The other thing is, is that when we talk with family members who are already in a religious system of some kind, and are, and here we've been raised in that religious system and it never changed our life, and we become a Christian now and our life becomes entirely uh, changed by becoming a, a, a Christian in that situation that um, well I lost my train of thought here on that um, give me an hour and uh, I'll call all of you please just um, text Gordon uh, your address and we'll get that to you so but uh, this kind oh when we're oh, how about that thank you Lord oh I lost it again no so, but when we're talking to people and we're talking about what they believe in in terms of God and what they believe in in terms of eternity, we are touching the most uh, valuable thing in their lives. And so when, for instance, I talk with a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon on my doorstep or someone who is a part of some other religious system, even if it calls itself Christianity, but it doesn't teach that salvation is only by faith in Christ, I realize that in this conversation I am rocking their world. Uh, in a way that news about the economy never will or personal news about some tragedy never will. We all operate in life and we've got this... we've got certain part of our foundation in life that we just think that if this never gets shaken, I'll be okay. And then now someone begins to talk to us about the things of the Lord. Now we're starting to touch that foundation. And it can really be difficult for people to hear. And they won't always... Uh, react in a in a great way, and sometimes there's this hostility that will occur, and all that we read about, even here, even within a family. But it only means that people understand the implications of what it is that we're saying, and it means that they really understand, way down deep, the implications of our changed uh, life. So it's not disheartening. But it it's it's can be miserable to be, in. and how many of us in this room can think of maybe a father or a mother or some other family member or a friend, and this was exactly the situation that we ended up in. This was their reaction. They couldn't put us to death because of the laws of the United States of America, but they wanted to do it. And then some weeks or months or years down the road, here they are as a Christian. Next thing you know, they're serving communion at their church or whatever it is, you know. So um, the old saying is, is that the dog that yelps, uh, you know, you throw a stone into a pack of dogs, the dog that yelps is is the one that got hit by the stone. And so often it's just an indication of, of, of the fact that, that they get it. You'll be hated by all for my, uh, for my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And so we're not saved by enduring but by staying committed to the things of the Lord and continuing to walk as a Christian uh, and, and, and doing so all the way to the end it would be an indication of the genuineness of our salvation. And uh, believe me, God has got us. Doesn't He ever been in a trial or in a situation where, you know, we talk about, um, you know, having uh, our… Uh, hand in His hand, and we've got a firm grip on God and all of that, and then, and all of that is great. Those are wonderful songs and wonderful things to hear about, and then you get into the trial that you then go through, and you realize the only reason I'm standing is because God had a grip on me. It had nothing to do with my grip, and so The idea here isn't to make us concerned about our salvation and persevering, you know, in order to earn our salvation, uh, but there will be that endurance. God will make sure of it uh, to the end as a a mark of our uh, genuinely being saved. When they persecute you in this city, then flee to another. There's nothing wrong with saying, this looks really bad, and I'm going to run, uh, flee to another city. We see it in the book of Acts. Uh, and and uh, where they uh, headed someplace else that was safer, delivered the message, and then it's like, okay, we'll leave it in God's hands, uh, go to another place. You don't have to say, all right, you know, slug me a second time, you know, you can, you can clear out of that witnessing situation. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And again, Jesus was following them now. uh, and, And so he says, you keep doing that, and I'm right behind you. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In other words, we must not expect the world to treat God in us or Jesus in us any different than it treated Jesus when He was here 2,000 years ago. How did the world treat Jesus 2,000 years ago? Not that great. Not that great. Religion didn't treat Him very well. Uh, Secular government didn't treat Him that very well. They were all threatened by Him and by His message. And yet somehow, you know, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit... I want, in the words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit to come out of my life as a torrent of living water, influencing all of the people that are around me. And we want that with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then somehow to believe that they will end up, the world by and large, will end up treating me better than it treated Jesus. And it won't. And so we can't bring that expectation. But also to realize that as many as there were of Pilate, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders that were involved in His trial and in His crucifixion to realize that the common people heard Him gladly. So there's a lot of trouble that we can run into with a lot of different people, and they're going to be threatened by Jesus in us as we live this life, and uh, teach His Word and preach His Word uh, as much as, as His preaching and teaching and life disturbed them uh, 2,000 years ago, but to realize behind all of this flack that I'm getting from these other people, there's a whole world of people that will hear gladly what it is that we have to say. They're waiting to hear that message just like we did, and they long to see a life that has been changed by that message. So we can't just keep our eyes on the persecutors within our life. We've got to put our eyes on the good fruit that is happening, people that are coming to know the Lord and uh, people that are being blessed by our lives. It's good a, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Belzebub, Lord of the Flies, how much more will they call those of his households? Imagine, this is what they're calling. We're calling Jesus. They were calling uh, Jesus the master of the house of Beelzebub, that he was the Lord of the Flies, or he was doing everything he was doing by virtue of being a part of the demonic realm. I mean, you think about how terrible of a thing to say about him. And he said, listen, this is what they're saying about me. I am the perfect son of God, and so what are they going to say about you? Oh, they have a lot to say about us behind closed doors, but we can't let it stop us um, from walking with the Lord and being faithful to His commission in our life. And therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known." So here you have the religious leaders of the Jews in Jesus' time calling him of the devil, that his power is of the devil rather than being of God, and that they were of God and they weren't of the devil. But Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. And Jesus said, the day is coming when God is going to make very, very clear who is of God and who is of the devil. But in the meantime is going to look uh, a little bit confusing for people and uh, will be called all kinds of things simply for being a Christian. Whatever I tell you in the dark, uh, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And so Jesus was saying, you've, you've been with me, I've been teaching you, I've been discipling you, you've heard all of these things in private, Now I want to t- you to take all these things that I've taught you in private now and... Take it out uh, into the light and speak these things uh, to people. Be faithful to the message no matter what. And do not fear those who uh, kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of those... uh, Okay. Uh, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been afraid of people that could kill my body. But he's telling us, listen, in in these situations in our life, there's no need to do that. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. There's something worse than a physical death in life, and there's something more serious than a physical death in life, and that is eternity. I was talking with a man in kind of an illustration of verse 28, talking to him a couple weeks ago. At the back door and he said he was talking about the fact that he uh, was on a missions trip with another pastor and they were I don't know where (laughs) they were in the world but it was a very very dangerous place and the pastor was really pretty bold and uh, pretty strong and heading forward in what they were doing and then this guy who was with the pastor he feared for his life and he feared for both of their lives in the in the kingdom situation that they found themselves in. And the pastor in one moment turned to the other guy and he said, This is a great day to die. Ha ha ha! How about that for clarity? This is a great day to die. What are you worried about? As a Christian, every day's a great day to die if if it's supposed to be our last day on earth. And so here is the thing, not fearing any of those things, fear the one who can Uh, rather fear Him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. In other words, fear God, don't fear man. And of course, the fear of God is the answer to the fear of man. Are there not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Copper coin was just like a penny. You get two for a penny in those days. I mean, very cheap, kind of synonymous with almost being worthless. And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. Do you realize that every bird that falls to the ground, and specifically Every sparrow that falls to the ground, God is aware of it. That's how aware he is of what is happening on planet Earth. And then he goes on and says, and but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Isn't that interesting? The very hairs of your head are numbered. That speaks of how intimate his knowledge is of us, and it also speaks of how current his knowledge is of us. Do you realize that tonight where you sit? God knows the very number of hairs on your head. Aren't you curious about what that number is? Then you kind of, how'd you do? Oh, thinning out a little bit, aren't you, here, and all of that. Be interested if people got this thick head of hair and all these kind of things. But God, that's how intimate His knowledge is of us. But it's interesting because, again, it speaks to the fact that His knowledge is current because that number is always changing. Every time you do this, or you comb your hair, or you, you know, get up from bed and there on your pillow is some kind of evidence of the fact that the number has changed, you know, or on your shoulders. And so the Lord is saying, even though all of this kind of stuff is going on in your life and all, don't think that when you face this thing that it's because I'm distant from you or I don't know what's going on in your life. And so Jesus is reassuring them, yes, you're going to face a lot of difficulties here, But I'm reassuring you of how close I am, how much I care about you, and therefore whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, don't let fear silence you, uh, much less cause us to deny Christ. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's strong words, really. But it's so important um, that the body of Christ, that we don't clam up related to the gospel. If I stop sharing the gospel, if I stop sharing the Word of God, And then I assume everybody else is going to do it, but then everybody else assumes that everybody else is going to do it. Pretty soon, nobody's speaking about Christ. And then we start to deny Him, and then His Word isn't being made known. And so this is kind of a strong, uh, you know, warning against that, going silent and, and the importance of confessing Him Uh, before men with the knowledge that He'll then confess us before our Father who is in heaven. Don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. One day He will, but not in His first coming. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, and and the sword speaks of division, and, and so often that division comes right into a home, as we've spoken earlier. For I have come to set a man against his father, a mother against, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemy shall be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those are strong words. And what they speak to us is this, is that our relationship with Christ is to be the most important relationship in our life. And we do not compromise that relationship, not for father, not for mother, not for son, not for daughter, not for anyone. That relationship is always to be the most important relationship in our life. But then to realize in making it that important in our lives and keeping it in that place, that no human relationship, no relationship that we have with any other human being will really ever suffer by virtue of that relationship being the most important one in our life. We will become a better husband by virtue of that, a better wife by virtue of that, a better worker by virtue of that, a better son or daughter by virtue of that. But when push comes to shove, that I either stay faithful to Christ or the ultimate kind of thing that can be held over our head, a place within our flesh and blood family, we are to always choose Christ. And again, this is the portion of so many Christians, not just 2,000 years ago, but all around the world, even tonight, where that pressure is brought to bear, we do not leave Christ And we do not deny Him no matter how great the pressure might be. Uh, Remember, we're talking about uh, culture that Jesus is speaking to in which the family is everything, Uh, patriarchal families. And so what the Father says, that goes and all. So to go against the family, I mean in America the culture is go against the family, who cares about the family until you get into trouble? And uh, so we have a, a, a great disregard for the family, but here he's speaking to people that would have held family, these relationships, and, you know, and to the, held it high in the utmost degree, and he says, even here uh, you can't… Uh, move away from uh, me and your relationship with me being most important. And he who does not take uh, his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. A cross is a, was a symbol of, of death, it was a symbol of execution in those days. It represents the surrender of my will. Uh, my death to myself and my will in order to say yes to God's will. He who does not take his cross, he's not willing to lay his own will aside for the sake of God's will and to follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who, does, and he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, as we die to ourself, we, and then we live to God, we are entering into the greatest life that a person can live. And, of course, the culture that we live in just pounds us day and night and day and night that life is found in just self-gratification and I and me and my and all of these things, and it isn't found there. And people know it. And we come to realize it, and that's why we come to know the Lord and uh, and to realize that, no, life is never going to be found in that kind of a place. Life is found in a relationship with God, surrendering my will to Him and then spending my life fulfilling His will for my life. That is the greatest life that a person can live. And he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, and these little ones doesn't speak of children, it speaks of Jesus' disciples. It's talking about righteous men and prophets and prophetesses. In other words, they're serving God and uh, giving their life for the Lord. And then you and I come along and we give them a cup of water or we, you know, make sure that they get fed under our roof or they get to stay in our home, show them hospitality and all. Whoever gives one of these little ones, God's servants, no matter how great they are, they're still little ones. If we give them only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Every act of kindness that we do towards God's servants is noticed by God, and it is rewarded by God. Uh, There's an old saying that goes, it is an honor to serve the servants of the Lord, every single person who serves the Lord in this world, whether they are teaching our children in the children's church or they're leading a Bible study or whatever it might be, they're living for God in some uh, ungodly environment within government or within education or in whatever, you know, uh, whatever it might be, in a regular kind of a job, a gallow or something. Um, every single person that lives for the Lord and is faithful to His call, every one of them pays a price for that. Every single one of them pays a price for that. And if they are not going to receive encouragement from the body of Christ, then where are we going to receive that? Where are they going to receive that? And again, I just think about it. it's so uh, terrible today as we go into social media With, again, the blogging and the tweeting and the Facebook and everybody, even Christians don't seem to understand that the uh, laws of the Bible that have to do with speech also pertain to what we communicate in these venues as well. And here you've got people that are sacrificing their entire lives for the things of the Lord. And then you've got the proverbial, how many people on the playing field, 21, 22, on the football field and all, and 80,000 up in the stands watching them. And everybody's an expert on what ought to be happening on the field. I'm an expert on every hole in the line that any running back ought to have hit in order to get 35 yards instead of 2 yards, especially with the 49ers. It's wonderful. I've got my remote right here. I can just send it back and open it up again. The problem is they're playing the game in real time, and they happen to be playing the real game, and I'm not. The importance of understanding that about God's servants and always being an encouragement to one another. They pay a price they, and you pay a price as well, and the importance of small gestures, just a little cup of cold water and what it means to them. God says, I will notice it, and I will reward it. We'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up in chapter 11, Lord willing, next week. Let's stand together. Ask the worship team to come forward to close us up, and uh, I'll close us now in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much, and Jesus, thank you for this commission and all that is in this that applied to them and applies to us as well. We thank you so much that there is a kingdom of light. We thank you so much that there is a God and that that God is you. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to lay our lives down, not for all of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, but to be able to lay our lives down day by day for something as significant as the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the salvation that is found in Christ. We thank you for the life that we have the privilege of living. And we thank you, Jesus, as you uh, forewarned your disciples in order that they might be forearmed that you've done the same thing in our lives tonight. Thank you for perspective that you have brought to our ministries tonight and our service to you, the encouragement that you have brought, and even the exhortation that you have brought tonight. We want to be faithful to you. We want to be found uh, being fully fruitful for you, Lord, in our hour in human history. And we thank you for this revelation concerning how to do that and how to be that. Father, thank You for the death of Your Son, His burial and His resurrection. Thank You for the sacrifice that that represented to You in order to provide us with salvation and the opportunity to know the life and the peace and the joy and the forgiveness that we do tonight. Jesus, thank You so much for being willing to come into this world and to do what You did in order to open up the doors to this life that we live. We bless you, Father. We bless you, Jesus. We thank you so much for your Holy Spirit so active in our lives. We bless you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.